Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at the last two verses of this passage of Scripture this morning. We continue to walk through this Two Ways to Live series. We're talking in these days about how we can know the gospel better so that we might share the gospel better. We can't share what we don't know. And so we want to know the ins and outs of the gospel that we might go to a lost and dying world, that we might go to lost friends and relatives, that we might go to lost co-workers and say, I've got the hope of glory and I want to share it with you. I want you to know him and the power of his resurrection. We've got to get serious about the gospel. I think one reason, though, that we're not serious about the gospel in our day is because in so many places the gospel has been watered down or replaced altogether with lesser forms. So many churches today have bought into a prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, a gospel that says that God's greatest desire is for your health, your wealth, and your happiness in this world. And if you're not healthy, wealthy, and happy in this world, then you must be doing something wrong. That is not the gospel, church. That is a false gospel that would lead every one of us to hell if we took hold of it as truth. See, church, we have a Savior who saw fit to talk so much more about hell than he ever did about heaven. Why? Why did Jesus keep talking about a place where the fire is not quenched and where the worm dieth not? Because it's a reality. Hell is not some mythical place made up by Christians to guilt everyone else into being good people. I want to talk to you about the reality of hell today. It's not being preached from a lot of pulpits anymore. And to be really honest, I've not done the best job of proclaiming this reality from this pulpit. But I am praying that God would grace me to do a better job in the days ahead. Because there's something worse than giving your life for Jesus Christ. There is something worse than your life being taken because of your faith in Him. There is a heaven to be gained by faith in Jesus Christ, but there is also a hell to be shunned. And we need to talk about this reality. As we said last week, we cannot understand the good news of the gospel and what Jesus was doing for us at the cross if we don't understand the bad news of the gospel. That we have sinned against a holy God. We have com- committed rebellious treason against him. And there is only one penalty that fits for treason. It's the penalty of death. And that death means an eternal separation from our holy king and creator. Now there is hope, and I want to get to the hope this morning. But in order for you to understand your need for the hope of the gospel, you first have to understand your hopelessness in light of the gospel. And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. If you'd stand in honor of God's word this morning. The writer of Hebrews gives us this word for our instruction and encouragement in the faith. And he says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
Let me read that again. Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, in the same way Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated today. Father, as we have opened your holy word, help us to see you, our holy God. Help us to see our sinful condition. Help us to see the condemnation that is rightfully due us because of our rebellion against you. And help us to see Christ, our Savior, who took our penalty that we might have his prize. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I want to speak with us about our correct condemnation. The reality that every one of us is deserving, not just of death, and not just of the grave, but of this place called hell. And we're deserving of it, not just for a season or for a time, but for all of eternity. Here's why we write hell out of the gospel. We write hell out of the gospel because we minimize the holiness of God. It's because we don't understand the holiness of God that we write out the idea of hell. And we write out the idea of hell and an eternal separation from God, an eternal punishment due to rebellious sinners because we not only minimize the holiness of God, but we also minimize the gravity of our sin. We looked last week at Romans chapter 3 and we saw, I hope, the gravity of our sin. But if I don't understand the holiness of God and I don't understand the gravity, the sinfulness of my sin, then hell seems like a myth. Just something to scare little children into being good. Nothing more than a Santa Claus story that you want to stay on the good list because he knows he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Garbage. But this is not garbage. This is not garbage. This is the truth from Almighty God saying to us, I want you to know the reality of hell and know the gravity of your rescue and where hope lies. David Kingdon said, sin against the creator is heinous to a degree utterly beyond our warped, sin-warped imagination's ability to conceive of. We can't even begin to understand fully the gravity of our sin, who would have the temerity to suggest to God what the punishment should be? But yet we do, don't we? When we look at the reality of heaven and hell as portrayed so clearly in the Scriptures, we look at that and we are so quick to cast judgment upon God and say, how in the world could a loving God ever send anyone to a place like hell? When what we miss is that the question of the gospel is not how could a loving God send us to hell. The question of the gospel is how can a just and righteous God who is perfect and holy in all of his ways look upon rebellious sinners like us and declare us not just not guilty, 
the declaration made of us before the throne of Almighty God is that we stand innocent before Him. That's a whole different thing, church. That we stand innocent before this holy God. Not because we are. We are not. And what do we do in relation to a judge that makes a habit of declaring the guilty innocent? He doesn't get reelected, does he? Because he does not deserve to be reelected. So the scandal of the gospel is not how in the world can a loving God send people to hell. The scandal of the gospel is how can a righteous God, holy and just in all of his ways, look upon rebellious sinners who are deserving of hell and hell forever. How can he look upon us and say, not only not guilty, but say they are innocent? It would be the greatest injustice of all if it were not for the cross. And we're going to get to the cross this morning. But before we get to the cross, let's understand the gravity of our situation. You see, number one, verse 27, we have a universal appointment. I don't know if you realize this or not, but every one of us in this room, there is a date on the future of our calendar that is the same for every one of us. And I'm not talking about a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment. There is, there is a date on your future calendar, and you don't know it, and I don't know it. Even the Son of God doesn't know it. Only the Father knows the date and time that he has appointed for us. How is it that the, the Son doesn't know what the Father knows? I don't know. That's the mystery of God there. When you figure that one out, you come and explain it to me, and because they are perfectly unified in every way. But, but somehow, only the Father knows this appointed date, but it's a date that is appointed for every one of us. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever walked the face of this earth will have this same appointment on their calendar. And it's the day when you and I will stand before the eternal throne of our holy God and have to give an account for our lives. You see, He gave us life. In Him we live and move and have our being. Everything that we have is a gift from Him. Every breath that you take in and every beat of your heart, every brain wave that moves through your mind is a gift of Almighty God. And we will stand before him one day and give an account for what we did with the gift of life that he gave to us. Now I want you to see the basis of his judgment in a few minutes. But first of all, as we look at verse 27, it is appointed for each of us. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. The first question we need to be asking is, who made this appointment? Who made the appointment? If my wife says to me, you've got an appointment this week that you need to keep, and I'm not aware of it, the first question I want to be asking is, who made this appointment? That's where we need to begin. And the one who made the appointment is the righteous judge. It is the Lord God Almighty who made this appointment for every one of us. We will stand before his judgment seat. It takes me back to several months ago when I had the privilege of serving on jury duty. And those of you that haven't served on jury duty, I want to encourage you in that. It's not only your civic duty, but it is a privilege to do so, to be able to serve in that way. And I know how we do. 
We try to find all kinds of reasons to avoid doing this because it's a burden on us and our time is much more important than everybody else's. I felt the same way. I felt the same way, but it is a privilege. When you serve on jury duty, you're supposed to call the night before each court date and see if they're going to be having the court, next day, the court the next day and see if you need to show up or not. And by the way, if you forget to call and they have court and you don't show up to be one of the jurors, guess what happens? A police officer shows up at your house with a summons to court saying, now you're in contempt of court because you were supposed to be there and you didn't show up. So now you get to go up, go up there and not be a juror. You get to be one slightly under trial and stand before the judge and try to give an excuse for why you didn't show up when you were supposed to. How do I know this? Because it happened to me. <laughs> in fact, it was right at a year ago, the night of our trunk or treat event, I was supposed to call about jury duty and forgot to call because I was wrapped up in giving out candy to kids. But the judge didn't really care too much about that when I stood before his court. He just simply looked at me, and this was a great question, and said, now do you think that's a very good excuse? And I bowed my head and said, no, sir, I don't. And praise be to God, he was merciful to me and the others who were idiots and didn't call and find out if they had jury duty. And I didn't have to pay the fine that I should have had to pay. There was a symbol of mercy there. But I was also reminded of this. Does not the judge have the right to make that appointment of me? How much more does Almighty God have every right to have every creature stand before his judgment seat. You see, we can be quick to cast judgment upon God as if we had any ability to do so. What right does God have to judge me in, in, in this judgment-free zone of a culture in which we live where any kinds of judgments are considered wrong? And by the way, the Bible does not teach that at all. He says you'll know them by their fruits. Well, in order to know them by their fruits, you first have to make a judgment about their fruits whether they belong to him or not. And the judge has every right, he had every right to hold me in contempt of the court when I didn't show up because he made the appointment and I was the one that was, was the one that needed to keep it. Ecclesiastes 3.17. God will judge the righteous. He didn't say he might. He will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And whose timetable is it? It's his. We submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God in these things. Acts 17, as Paul is preaching the gospel in, in the city of Athens, he says to them, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. Who does that leave out? Nobody. He commands all people everywhere, Jews, Gentiles, black and white, male and female. He commands them all to do what? To repent, to turn from sin. The command of God to repent because he has fixed a day. It's fixed. It's set in the mind of God. We don't know it yet, but it's fixed. From eternity past, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. By the way, that's Jesus. Read the rest of Acts 17. You see the man appointed as our judge is Jesus. And by the way, understand this very clearly today. In fact, I'd say if you don't get anything else out of this message today, know this. Not only is Jesus the judge, 
but he is also the standard by which you will be judged. He is both the judge and the judgment. So we look to him. We'll talk more about that before we finish this morning. We're going to get to good news, but stay with me in the bad news for a moment. First of all, who made it? The righteous judge. Who must keep this appointment? All people. There are no exemptions. This is how it's not like jury duty. You can get an exemption for all kinds of reasons to get out of jury duty, or at least to postpone jury duty. There are no exemptions here. There is no one that's going to be absolved of of this moment in your future. There's a day when you will stand personally. The most vivid reality that you will ever experience is that moment when you will stand before the holy God and have to give an account for your life. And we'll talk about what account we will give here in just a moment. But before we get there, Ecclesiastes 12 as, this, as Solomon is wrestling over the realities of life, the purpose of life, and how we must spend it, he comes to this conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes. He says this, here's what I know. God will bring every deed into judgment. You see, Solomon got it. This is Old Testament, folks. Solomon understood that though he didn't know a lot of things, he knew this, God is going to bring every deed into judgment Every secret thing, whether good or evil, we will all have to give an account to him. This is the reality. Acts 10, as Peter is proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time, the gospel's been kept among the Jews for, for several months, and now for the first time, God is expanding the vision and the preaching of the gospel into the Gentiles. And here's what Peter says as a part of that proclamation to the Gentiles. He, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now is that a part of what we think about when we think about sharing the gospel? No, we, we so often just want to begin and end with, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, which is true. And we're going to get to that truth. We're going to hammer home that truth next Sunday. But you won't understand why Jesus died on the cross for your sins makes any difference to you if you don't understand who this holy God is, if you don't understand what the gravity of your sin means, if you don't understand that the gravity of your sin means that you have a one-way ticket punched to a place called hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. By the way, church, we live in a day where the predominant thought about what happens after death, after your last breath, the last beating of your heart, we are living in a culture that the predominant thought about that is this. It's one of a, a, a worldview called annihilationism. I know it's a big word. But annihilationism basically teaches this, that when you breathe your last, when the last beat of your heart happens, when the last brain wave passes through your mind, that's just the end. It's just done. There is nothing after that moment in the view of annihilationists, which are the predominant worldview in, in the country that we're living in right now. Now, I know we're still in the remnants of the Bible Belt. We're still, people still talk a good game about heaven and hell and all those things. I understand that. I understand the Bible Belt is shrinking rapidly. And the majority of folks, even those that can talk a good game about heaven and hell, they don't really believe it because it's clear in the way that they live. They don't live in the fear of God. 
They live as if this is all there is. And Solomon said, if this is all there is, then eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up. If all you're going to get is 75, 80 years on this rock, then make the most of it and live it however you want to. Live your best life now because it's the only one you're going to get. That's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is saying this is just the beginning. There is something after death. If you belong to Jesus Christ... If you put your faith in him, the Apostle Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So when you breathe your last breath, you will be immediately in the face of your Savior, in his presence. That's the hope that we have. That's what we long for. But if you reject his free offer of eternal life through the blood of his cross... And the Bible says you will face the wrathful judgment of God. And rightly so. So part of our proclamation of the gospel must be to talk about this judgment that is due to us all. What's the outcome of this judgment? What's the outcome of this appointment that God has made for us? It's either heaven or hell. Now I know for some of you in this room, you're thinking, man, we're going back to church like it was when I grew up, hellfire and brimstone. The preacher's going back to this. I wish we'd never left it. I wish we'd never left the reminder that hell is a real place. This is not some mythical fairy tale that Christians have made up. Jesus spoke about this because he wanted to warn us of the coming judgment. And he wanted to show us that he was the only hope that we had of not having the wrath of God and eternal punishment inflicted upon us. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 paints a picture of the outcome, the two ways of life, the two outcomes that we might experience at the end of our days. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. He's like a tree. The righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water. He bears, he bears its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. And just imagine in your mind this picture of a beautiful tree planted by a sweet flowing stream. He said that's what a picture of righteousness is. But then he says, but not so the wicked. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 3.23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. Sorry, that's 623. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to be reminded that death is due us. That this is what we deserve because of our treasonous rebellion against this holy God. We need to be reminded that His judgment, His justice is right and true. That none of us, as we saw in Romans 3 last week, that when we stand before Him, there's coming a day when every mouth will be stopped. Every excuse will be useless. 
There will be nothing that you can say on that day to justify yourself. You will only be able to plead the blood of Christ and His righteousness for your salvation. Your only plea on that day will be Jesus. Jesus and His finished work at the cross. You will not stand before this holy God and make a proclamation of your own righteousness, and neither will I. None of those words will make it past your lips. There will be nothing to say. Only Jesus. He is our hope. What's our hope when we face disappointment? It's Christ and Him alone. There's no hope in your works. Stop trying to earn the favor of God through being a good boy or a nice girl. You will not measure up. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us faith, face His wrathful judgment. It is only Jesus. It is only Jesus who saves. Jesus said in John 5, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Take that in for a moment. Jesus, your Savior, will also be Jesus, your judge. And rightfully so. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Father loves to glorify the Son. He is pleased. Remember what he said, Jesus' baptism? This is my Son. In him I am well pleased. Fathers in this room, what greater joy is there in life than honoring your Son? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, Jesus said. He, he reserved that phrase for top-shelf truth statements that he wanted us to see and to know and to latch onto. Everything Jesus said was true, but these are ones he's saying, this is top-shelf. Don't miss this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Here's the hope of the gospel this morning. That you can escape the judgment of God. You can pass from the death that is due you into the life that only rightfully belongs to him. It comes from believing him, taking him at his word, turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. You see, he took our penalty and gave us his prize. He took our death and gave us life freely and abundantly. We sang it earlier, didn't we? Don't we believe it? At the end of the day, the words of Genesis 18 should be ringing in our souls. On the lips of Abraham, he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so if the great scandal of the gospel is how in the world can a holy and righteous God look upon rebellious, treasonous sinners like us and declare us not only not guilty but innocent in his sight, how is that possible? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's look at verse 28. We've seen here the justified judgment of God over us. There's a universal appointment for all of us. Now look at verse 28, and we see in verse 28, there is also an undeniable appearing. Let's go back and look at it again. 
And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. But the second time around, it's not going to be about dealing with sin. That's what he did at the cross. That's already done. That's what he said. It is finished. That's done. He's not going to come again to deal with sin. That's already taken place. What's he going to do? He's going to come instead to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. By the way, church, are we yearning for him? Is the deepest longing of our soul for Jesus? One of my favorite pastors is often heard to say, if you don't really want Jesus, then you don't really want heaven. If all you're wanting is pie in the sky, by and by, the mansion on a hill, the eternal golf course, and the lifelong fishing trip, if, that, if that's all you want, then you really don't want heaven. Because you want to know what heaven's all about? It's all about Jesus. He is the line of the tribe of Judah who is seated on the throne of heaven. He is the lamb that was slain for our redemption. Every eye in heaven will be upon him, and no one will have a desire for anything more than to draw near to the eternal God and his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And you say, how boring that seems to sit around and sing praise songs and sit on clouds with harps all day long. That's not what heaven's going to be. But at the center of heaven is the source of heaven, Jesus Christ, the one through whom all things were created. He is the one that we are called to desire. And what has he done for us? I want you to see three things about this great salvation that he purchased for us by his blood at the cross. First of all, this is a past salvation. Look at verse 26 in Hebrews 9. And we see this. He has appeared to defeat our sin. This is done. He came once to deal with sin. That's done. He appeared to defeat our sin. Verse 26, as it is, he has appeared once for all. This is not a sacrifice that had to be repeated over and over and over again. You think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Every day, hundreds of animals sacrificed on the altar there in Jerusalem. The blood flowed down the altar It was a hideous picture to remind us of the hideousness of our sin. But of all the blood of those bulls and goats, of all the blood that was spilled, it did not atone for even one sin. It was all there pointing us to the reality that for all that they had done to try to make atonement for their sin, it was worthless in the long run. It was merely pointing forward to the real need of the perfect Son of God laying His life down, spilling His blood for us. The true atonement might be made and true forgiveness might be received. He has appeared to defeat our sin. That's salvation past, salvation present. What's Jesus doing now? He is now appearing to defend the saints. Jesus is not just kicking back in heaven waiting for us to show up. He is actively praying for us as the children of God. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that your Savior is not kicking back in the lazy boy. He is praying for you. He is interceding for you. Think about this. 
When it feels like your marriage is falling apart, believer, Jesus is praying for you. When your children are running away in rebellion against God, Jesus is praying for you. When you lose your job, Jesus is praying for you. When depression hits, Jesus is praying for you. Let's be reminded of this. This is what our Savior is doing. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Verse 24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. That old temple in the Old Testament made with hands, though beautiful and glorious, it was a dim reflection of the heavenly glory. He says he's entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. They're sad replicas. But rather, he's entered into heaven itself. And what's he doing there? He's appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. That ought to cause you to rise up and shout hallelujah. That ought to cause you to say glory to God. That the Savior who died on the cross for my sins is now praying, interceding for me. He is whispering my name into the ear of the Father. And he's praying, Father, show him mercy. Give them passion for the gospel. Teach them to sing your praises at the top of their lungs. Help them to live with a reckless abandon for this great reality that what we have is so much more than just this 75 or 80 years on this rock. That he has created us with a forever soul that will live forever in one of two places. And the dividing line between heaven and hell has nothing to do with your good works or your reputation or your ability to somehow earn the favor of Almighty God. The dividing line between heaven and hell is Jesus Christ. What are you doing with Jesus? To turn from your sins and to trust in Christ is the pathway to eternal life. To reject his free offer of eternal life and to continue to live your life your own way, doing your own thing, being your own king, is to continue on that pathway to hell. And you will have no excuse. There will be no justification. You will either plead the blood of Christ or your mouth will be stopped. And third, you see, he will appear again. He is coming again, and it will be no baby in a manger. It will be the king of glory. The crown upon his head, riding upon the white horse with the sword of his judgment in his hand. And that will either be for every man, woman, boy, and girl that sees that day appointed by the Father. That will either be for them the greatest day they've ever seen or the worst. It will either be their experience of the fullness of God's wrath upon their lives or it will be the day of their ultimate salvation. You see, here's the reality of our salvation, church. Here's how great God's salvation is for us. It was finished at the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. And yet he continues to play out that salvation in the lives of God's children through his intercession for us. 
He continues to plead the mercy of God toward us. He continues to plead the power of his blood over us. And his ongoing effects in our lives as he's bringing us through this beautiful process of sanctification, which is so often painful, but the result is so glorious and beautiful. But our salvation also has this future reality that he is coming again. He is coming again to save those, who look at our text, who are eagerly longing for him. Are we eagerly longing for him? Is the deepest yearning of our souls for him? As we close today, I just want to read some scripture from the book of Revelation. We were in Revelation 4 a few weeks ago. I want to go to Revelation 20. If you want to turn with me, you're welcome to. I just want to read and let the scripture speak for itself today. In Revelation 20 and 21, we see two pictures of eternal destinies. One of these will be true for every man, woman, boy, and girl that ever walks the face of this earth. Every life finds its destination in one of these two pictures. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, then John says, I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death and the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Where Jesus would say, where the fire is never quenched and even the worm never dies. There is no annihilation. Only eternal punishment which is rightfully deserved. Then look in Revelation 21. Let's see the other picture. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the voice of our Savior, saying, Behold, look, listen, pay attention. The dwelling place of God is with man. His tabernacle is with us. His presence is up close and personal. See it? He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If that sounds like an Old Testament promise, you're getting it. He's fulfilling his Old Testament promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Do we not long for this church? Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God will do away with all the broken realities of the existence in which we find ourselves. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, pay attention. Don't miss this. I am making all things new. Every bit of the brokenness that came into my world because of sin, I'm going to remove all of it. 
And there will be for those who have put their faith fully and finally in Jesus Christ alone. There will be an eternal reward that is completely undeserved. We will see the reality of God's great grace as we look upon those who stand under the wrathful judgment of God and recognize in that moment that we were no better than they. It was only because He opened our eyes to see what we did not see opened our ears to hear what we would not hear. It was only because He took our stone-cold hearts and changed them into hearts of flesh that now beat for Jesus. And we will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God forever and ever without end. At the end of the day, church, there are just two ways to live. There are two eternal destinations. The difference between one and the other is only found in whether you trust Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself or whether you keep striving to do what only He can. Maybe today's the day when you stop striving. I pray it is.